Uh, this morning we're going to be in Joshua 7, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through chapter 8, 29. Uh, it's on page 182 of your pew Bibles, if you're using those. Um, Joshua chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through 8, 29. <coughs> well, as many of you know, uh, I'm an avid San Francisco Giants fan, um, but I'm also just a baseball fan in general, uh, and I love the postseason. Well, this year specifically, um, if you're paying attention, something odd happened. Uh, the teams at the end of the season with the best records were these. The New York Yankees, the Minnesota Twins, the Houston Astros, the Atlanta Braves, and unfortunately, the Los Angeles Dodgers. Those are the teams that should win the World Series. Uh, they had the best records through 162 games. But that's not what happened. Uh, even crazier, the World Series went seven games and not once did the home team win. That's never happened in, in history before. Uh, the road team won every game uh, and the wild card Washington Nationals went home with the hardware. Uh, the team that was supposed to win didn't. Even more, uh, the team that lost the World Series may have been breaking the rules. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. This morning, as I said, we're going to be in Joshua 7.1 through 8.29. I'm not going to read the entire passage, uh, but I will be reading different sections and verses as we walk through the text. Um, I hope Many of you have had time to read the text prior to coming, and if you haven't, I encourage you this afternoon to go read uh, the entire text. Joshua 7, starting in verse 1 through 8, 29. Uh, the main truth that I want us to see in this text is this. Sin cannot be tolerated among God's people. Sin cannot be tolerated among God's people. That's the main truth that I think we're meant to see in this text. And our four points that we're going to walk through are these. Number one, the holiness of God. Number two, the wrath of God. Number three, the many and the one. And then number four, repentance, renewal, and remembrance. So number one, the holiness of God. And I'm going to jump in in verse two. Chapter 7, verse 2, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shevarim and struck them at, at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. What in the world? <laughs> they got their tails whipped. Uh, this is Israel, the, the people of God, the people who crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, the people who crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, 
The people who just dominated Jericho with a shout. I want us to remember that chapter 6 ended with these words. Last verse of chapter 6. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. And then they got manhandled by an underdog city, Ai. It was a tiny town. Like, like think about this. Think about if, if San Francisco decided to go attack Davenport. That's what it would be like. So what happened? Well, you'll notice that, that I skipped verse 1. In verse 1, we, the readers, are, are let in on a little secret that neither Joshua nor any of the other people knew. Look with me at verse 1. I'm going to read chapter 6, verse 27 again, just to show the sharp contrast here. So chapter, chapter 6, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. That word, but, at the beginning of verse 1 is deafening, right? There was sin in the camp. And I want us to remember what God said in Joshua chapter 6, verses 18 through 19. He said, but you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take, take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So we're let in on verse one that the people of Israel disobeyed this command and sinned against God. And this sin proved to be deadly. It was kind of like a silent killer. Uh, the people of Israel didn't know about it. Joshua didn't know about it. But God knew about it. And I want us to consider this up front. Maybe it wasn't about the stuff. Think about that. Do you think God needed the stuff? A jacket and some money? No, he didn't. It's not about the stuff. It's about this. Did they trust God? Did they trust God to provide without having to grab stuff from AI? Side note here, we're, we're going to even see that God gives them permission to take the stuff the second go around in, in AI. It's not about the stuff. It's about trusting God. And Achan didn't. And the result was absolutely terrifying. And to be clear, by the result, I don't just mean losing the battle to AI. Look with me at the second part of verse 12. This is another one of those chapters where the author gives us a structure of the narrative just to kind of zero us in on key points. Remember the concept of the narrative sandwich. You've got two pieces of bread that match up. You've got two pieces of lettuce that match up. And the meat right in the middle um, is what the author's wanting us to key in on. Well, in this text, our bread, in verse 1, we've got God's wrath burning 
Again, in, in verse 26b, we're going to see God's wrath again, but turned away. Uh, in verses 2 through 5, we'll see disaster for Israel. In verses 24 through 26, we'll see disaster for Achan. There's, there's some lettuce. Then we've got leaders before God, Israel before God, divine revelation uh, of the problem, divine instruction for the solution. And then right in the middle, right in the middle of our sandwich, this is what the author's trying to get us to look at, is verse 12b. So, what's at the midpoint that the author wants us to focus on? This. I will be with you no more. Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. I will be with you no more. Ugh. What a terrible statement. Remember... This, this was the highlight of Joshua chapter 1. God proclaiming to them, I will be with you. The presence of God. This is what brought them across the Jordan, what, what brought down the walls of Jericho. Without the presence of God, they're up a creek. I will be with you no more. Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. It's so vital here that we understand God's absolute holiness. The word holy means set apart or separate. And God is holy in an absolute sense. He's holy other than all of creation. That was true of God before Achan's sin. This is who God is in his nature. He's holy. But... God's holiness has a moral or ethical quality to it as well. Because of his holiness, he can have no communion with sin. This is why Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden in Genesis chapter 3. They used to walk in the cool of the day with God, remember? They used to be in communion with him. But... When they sinned, they cut themselves off of relationship with him. They were put out of the garden. And a separation between God and man transpired. God is completely holy and completely set apart. He cannot throw his lot in with sin. As long as the people of Israel were putting up with the presence of sin... They would be forfeiting the presence of God. I think at this point, it's important for us to understand this concept of covenant. While the idea of covenant can be really complicated and hundreds of books have been written on this topic, I'm not wanting to get in, into the weeds here today, but I do want us to understand that the basic concept of covenant is this. It's a promise, or a commitment, or an oath. It's a promise, commitment, or an oath. And this idea of covenant is all over Scripture. And for our purposes in this text, I want us to understand this. This is going to come up again next, in next week's text as well. But, but there are two different kinds of covenants in the Bible. One kind is unconditional. An unconditional covenant. It's where God makes a binding promise. 
In other words, these are things that God has committed to do for his people no matter what. That's unconditional covenant. On the other hand, there are covenants in the Old Testament that are clearly conditional. God promising blessing for obedience and curse for disobedience. So think about this from a parenting standpoint. You have unconditional love for your kids, I hope. But you want their obedience, right? In fact, they may incur discipline for disobedience. And even that discipline comes from the fact of your unconditional love for them. God spells this out in Hebrews chapter 12. We're disciplined because we're loved sons and daughters. We see this kind of conditional covenant in places like Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verses 1 and 2. God says this, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Down in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, it says, But, but, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And lists out all of the curses. That's what we're seeing played out here in Joshua chapter 7. Because they've sinned and spurned God's holiness, they're surrendering God's presence. They're surrendering God's power. God has called his people to holiness because he's holy. That has been violated right here. Thus, they've incurred, point two, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. God's direct command given through Joshua, as we saw in chapter 6, was ignored. And Israel experienced the consequences here. First, in losing to Ai. Look at verses 4 through 5 of chapter 7. So, about 3,000 men went up to there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men, and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim, and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. So you see how the, the tables have kind of turned here? In, in chapter 2, Rahab told the spies when, when they came into Canaan, she told them, the people of Canaan have heard of Israel and of her God, and all of their hearts melted. That's what Rahab said to the spies in chapter 2. Now, it's the people of God's hearts who are melting. They experience the loss of God's presence, and they lose to Ai. And how do they respond? Look at verses 6 through 9. They lose to Ai, and then verse 6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? 
to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. Oh Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off your name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So tearing clothes and falling on the ground are appropriate shows of repentance in the Old Testament. But how does God respond to this? So they lose to Ai. This is is what Joshua and the elders do. They tear their clothes. They put dust on their heads. They fall to the ground. That's an appropriate show of repentance. But how does God respond? Look at verse 10. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Joshua gives an appropriate display of repentance, and God says, Get up. Get up. Why do you think he says this? Look at verses 11 and 12. Israel has sinned. This is God speaking. Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So hear this loud and clear. God doesn't just want a show of repentance. He wants sin put away. He doesn't just want words. He wants action. Get up. Before you tear your clothes and lay on the ground, destroy the devoted things from among you, he says. Do you see how ethnicity didn't protect them from God's wrath here? This isn't, in chapter 5 and 6, this isn't about the Canaanites being killed because they're Canaanite. We said that last week. It's about the holiness of God. Israel's learning that the hard way here. Israel isn't immune to God's wrath just because of their bloodline. But do you see how gracious God is, even in the midst of his wrath? First, only 36 of the 3,000 men who went up to Ai were killed. Could have been much, much more. Second, God is gracious to even clearly tell them his displeasure. He doesn't leave them in the dark wondering what they did. He tells them clearly just like he did with Nathan and David. Remember, David, this is what you did. You're that man. You've sinned against God. You need to repent. This is God's mercy, even amidst his wrath, to make it clear to us when we've sinned. He doesn't want us comfortable in our sin. Therefore, he makes sin plain. So repentance and restoration can happen. God, more than anyone else, knows how dangerous sin is. So he gives them a little taste of his wrath and displeasure. 
out of, and this is key, out of love and care for them. Recognize this. If, if God didn't love them, he would have let them sit in their sin. And that sin would have ultimately destroyed them. But he doesn't do that. He knows the best thing for them is obedience and holiness and relationship with him. This is essentially what God says in Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 6. Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. He says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is disciplining his own people because he loves them and because he knows how deadly sin is. We also will get a a glimpse of God's wrath in the person of Achan. But but I want to look at this from a little bit different angle. Point three, the many and the one. The many and the one. Each week... Uh, I ask our staff to read through the text and kind of send me their thoughts and questions uh, as they read through the text for the first time. And this week, uh, Brooke, our lovely children's director, she had some great questions about this text. Uh, She noted that it seemed unfair that 36 Israelites died for one man's sin. Further, she pointed out that the same thing with regards to Achan's sin. Achan's whole family dies at the end of this passage. What's up with that? Well, I want to get at that by starting in verse 21. Achan gets caught. They go through this entire process of rolling lots, casting lots, narrowing it down. And presumably, he could have repented at any moment in that process. But he didn't. He goes to the bitter end. They cast lots and they zero in on his tribe and his clan and his family. And then to him, no repentance. And once he's exposed, he says this. He's caught, he's exposed, and he says, here's what I did. Verse 21. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them, and I took them, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. You hear those verbs? Saw, coveted, took, hid. What does that sound like? Garden of Eden, at its worst moment, right? Genesis chapter 3. I want to read this for us. Look at this. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 through 8. Genesis 3, 6 through 8. So, When the woman, this is speaking of Eve, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took 
of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, what was the result of the fall in the garden? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Through one man, sin spread to all men. This is why Paul commands churches to practice church discipline in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin doesn't stay contained. It spreads. Achan saw the loot. He coveted it. He grabbed it. And he hid it. And it brought about death death of 36 Israelites and of his own family. After seeing the garden and seeing Achan in this passage, I want to suggest that these aren't isolated incidents. That's always how sin works. It's so easy for us to, to look at Achan and think, what in the world were you thinking, Achan? Come on, like, God just told you not to take stuff. And you did. It's easy to do that. But we all do the same exact thing each and every time we sin. We know what God said. And yet we willfully choose to disobey him. Look with me at James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. He says, But each person is tempted... When he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Amazing imagery there, right? Sin is conceived, gives birth, fully grows up, kills you. Sin grows in us like a child. It might not be quick. My friend Seth said it this way. He said, sin doesn't care how fast it kills you, as long as it does. That's profound. Friend, what sin are you showing hospitality in your heart? What sin are you letting be conceived in your heart? Sin doesn't care how fast it kills you, as long as it does. And it will. I want to read this quote. We've read it before, but I want to read it again. This is from John Owen in The Mortification of Sin. He says, Do you put sin to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. 
Achan sinned, and it affected many. He was taken outside the camp and killed. But there was another who would come after him, a man who would be taken outside the camp and killed. Hebrews 12, verse 12 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. So just as sin came into the world through one man and spread to all men, so sin was dealt with by one man for the many. Again, I want to read Romans 5 verses 12 through 21 here. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that beautiful? But what we're meant to see here in Joshua 7 and 8 is the seriousness of sin. It's dangerous, it'll kill you, it'll spread to others. We've got to be quick to deal with sin and to bring it to light. But we do so knowing that one man has died in our place, paying the full, the full penalty for our sin, knowing that in Jesus we're forgiven and redeemed and fully secure sons and daughters of the king. Finally, point four, repentance, renewal, and remembrance. That this text is certainly one of judgment for sin. Certainly one of judgment for sin. But it's also one of hope. First of all, once the sin is discovered, Joshua and the people of Israel do exactly what God commands them to do. They obey. They put sin to death. How does God respond in light of their turning? 
he returns to them. He gives them his presence once again. He tells them, do not fear and do not be dismayed. And he gives Ai and its king into their hands. God is not a capricious God. His people repent, and he renews relationship with them. His people repent, and he renews relationship. We can have the same hope today. The Bible teaches us that for those who repent of sin and trust in Jesus as their only confidence of salvation, that they'll be redeemed and have relationship with God restored once and for all. Even better than that, Scripture teaches us that this never goes away. The blood of Christ was shed for us. And Ephesians chapter 1 says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance. There's hope for those who repent and believe. This is a little bit of a deep dive here. But I want us to see this little nugget of hope here in this text. Look at verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 24 through 26. Chapter 7, verses 24 through 26. It says, And they brought them up to the valley of Acre. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of the place is called the Valley of Achor. The Valley of Achor. As many of your Bibles will tell you, Achor means trouble. This was the Valley of Trouble where this man, Achan, the sin of one man, brought trouble on them all. But check this out. There's this fantastic book in the Old Testament called Hosea. If you're unfamiliar with the story, here's kind of how it goes. Uh, God calls his prophet Hosea to go marry a woman named Gomer, who's completely unfaithful to him, repetitively. But... God continues to tell Hosea to go back, to go back, to go back, and to be faithful to her, even when she's unfaithful to him. See, Hosea is meant to be a picture of God's love for Israel, who was playing the harlot with other gods. And in the beginning of Hosea, there's this amazing part. God is spelling out judgment for sin, and he gives three different judgments starting with this word, therefore. Hosea chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge, her, uh, hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. So he's going to stop her from fulfilling her desires as she pleases. Hosea 2, 9, the second judgment. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. So he's going to deprive her of necessities. This judgment is heading downhill fast. Her sin is before her. Then look at the last therefore of the text, Hosea 2, 14 and 15. 
Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. You see that? Gomer and Israel deserved God's full judgment, just like Achan. But God promises that he'll pursue her and speak tenderly to her and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. This place of trouble that Achan brought upon Israel is going to be transformed into a door of hope by God. Is this not the gospel story? Our sin brought trouble upon us and upon our world. But God, through Christ, has given us a door of hope. That's the good news. And finally, I want to point to how they remember all of this. Look at verses 26, verse 26 of chapter 7. And they raised over him, meaning Achan, a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Now, chapter 8, verse 29. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. So, end of chapter 7, there's stones that remind them of the price of sin. Chapter 8, there's stones that remind them of God's victory for them. Church, this is exactly what we're meant to do each and every time we take the Lord's Supper. We're meant to be reminded of the price of our sin and God's victory over them through Christ Jesus. Before we move to taking this meal, I want to finish this morning a little bit differently. I want to finish with four points of application from this text. So as you begin to prepare your hearts for communion, consider these applications. Number one, take sin seriously. Take sin seriously. Take time, even right now, to ask God to reveal any sin in your heart. Repent and put it to death. Take sin seriously. Two, expose your sin. Get get it out in the open and confess it, both to God and maybe to someone else. Whatever you think you're hiding, remember, it's not hidden from God. It'll destroy you. Expose it to the light. And remember that there's no such thing as a small sin. Achan took a jacket and some money. In the eyes of the world, that's no big deal, right? But any sin against an infinitely holy God deserves death. Expose it. Turn from it. Put it to death. Third, take church discipline seriously. Remember, Paul says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. God has called us to be holy as a church. And every member of the church has covenanted to apply this truth. Fourth, 
Receive forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Walk in newness of life and cling to the hope that we have in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Consider these things as we sing and as we prepare our hearts for communion. Let's pray.